1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Have you ever
2: wondered what it's like to bite into Nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity, sweet gummy and tangy, crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Hola. Hello,
3: this call is being translated.
2: Abuela, listen to what
4: my phone can do.
3: incredibly ill-judged, harsh, unimaginative, stupid upbringings affected uh, both of the future kings. They were both of them badly educated.
4: That was Richard Davenport Hines on the early lives of Edward VII and Edward Eighth. He was a patriot.
3: I think
5: he was a fool rather than a knave. I think he was taken in by Hitler. I think he thought fascism was fashionable. Um, he went in for... What was known at the time as Savile Row fascism. In other words, it was smart to be a fascist.
4: And that was Piers Brendan talking about Edward VIII's relationship with Nazism.
6: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. Or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to our third podcast of July 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. The Penguin Monarchs series is an ongoing project where a series of distinguished historians are writing short biographies of the kings and queens of Britain and England. Two of the more recent additions to the list are a pair of kings who shared the same name and the same century – King Edward VII, and his grandson, King Edward VIII. The Life of Edward VII has been written by the acclaimed biographer, Richard Davenport Hines, while Edward VIII's story is told by the Cambridge historian, Piers Brendan. We thought it would be an interesting idea to get the two authors in the same room, to discuss these fascinating kings and their very contrasting reigns. Putting the questions to them was our Reviews Editor, Matt Elton.
3: I'm Richard Davenport-Hines and I wrote Edward the 7th the Cosmopolitan King. I'm Piers Brendan, and
5: I wrote Edward the 8th the Uncrowned King.
7: Fantastic. Thank you. And what was it about your respective kings that appealed to you as subjects? I was asked to do it. Okay.
3: And and was so flattered to be part of the series that I th- I think that I would have written um the most boring monarch they could have found for me, if they'd asked me. Uh, but Edward VII was um, tremendously exciting t- for me because the Edwardian age has so many parallels with the, the first 15, 16 years of this century. And, I, I, and my book is a, 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 a parable in some ways of a lot of issues of our own time.
5: I too was immensely flattered to be asked um, in such uh, elevated company. Uh, and I was particularly attracted to Edward VIII because I'd written about the 1930s already. And um, he gave me a marvelous opportunity to smuggle in Republican cent- sentiments into an Edward uh, into a monarchical enterprise. So um, I didn't have to work hard at it because his career was so deplorable and he himself was so deplorable in lots of ways actually what I had to fight against was um, I, I I had to fight for really for him and I tried to do a, a a balanced job because this was not in any sense a Republican polemic it was actually an attempt to write a fair-minded biography and to stand back from him and to say well what could be said on his behalf as well as how how he let the monarchy down and and
3: disgraced himself. Mm. And I I was very different from Piers in that respect, since I revel in being a subject and not a citizen, and um, as a strong monarchist. And and, and another theme of my book, I suppose, is how um, much more important the institution of the monarchy and the existence of the world household is can be than the individual who happens to be monarch. So that Edward VII is, in many ways, um, uh, a selfish and destructive and exploitative man who, nevertheless, is dragged up in character by duty.
5: Yes, that that, that that is interesting. That comes across very well I, I, in in your book. I mean, you don't do what Jane Ridley did, which was to say that he um, he started off as Prince Hal and 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 he became Henry V. You don't you don't have that sort of what I take to be a slightly exaggerated view of 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 his um, his development. Uh, although I admire Jane Ridley's book enormously, I think it's one of the best books uh, r- written about the monarchy, but. Uh, uh, and and you do this marvellous thing uh, of of not being influenced by sort of retrospective sycophancy
3: as so many royal biographers are. Well, thank you. Um, um I mean, we, we Pierce and I both had, a, I think, a similar problem, which was there were fairly recent existing biographies of our subjects that were really top notch, uh, uh, Jane Widlers of Edward the Seventh and. Philip Ziegler's of Edward VIII, which are both smashing books. Yeah. And, um, Ziegler's book is quite the most, uh, was allowed by the world family to be quite the most outspoken sexually about the sexual submissiveness of its subjects and the masochism
7: of its subject. It's interesting having you both in the same room because we can talk about uh, things that are common between these two people and perhaps different. How much do you think their early experiences, their youth, uh, shaped both of their kind of later years and their reign, ice well, I
5: suppose. Well, I I think that their childhoods were were both absolutely appalling. I mean, one royal functionary said that the the the, the, the royals. Uh, like ducks they trample on their children and 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 this was very much uh, what happened to, uh, Richard will talk about Edward the seventh but it was certainly what happened to Edward the as a small boy David to the family of course he was bullied by his father who was a kind of um, a kind of uh, naval martinet and and who treated his children as uh, as sort of naval ratings and bullied and berated them and worse than that really sort of showed them up and Insisted that they must behave properly, and I mean, one of his children, Henry, um, under the pressure of George V's bullying, actually literally fainted. I mean, he, he 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 couldn't stand up to it at all, and Edward the Eighth sort of. Uh, I think it may have been something to do with his curious sexual character that 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 he eventually found himself in a state of sort of masochism that that he could only really respond um, to a woman who treated him in uh, uh, like dirt and 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 his first. Mistress, uh, uh, his first sort of official mistress, um, Frida Dudley Ward, said said to him, you know, he he loved it. He 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 couldn't he couldn't do without this sort of punishment. That's what he wanted. And in a sense, the whole tragedy of Edward VIII, the 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 falling in love with Mrs Simpson and becoming his uh, becoming her slave, um, <clears throat> dated back to the vile treatment that he got at the hands of his father and and queen mary who uh, tried to mitigate that but was a kind of regal marionette and whose in whose veins it was he said was iced water you know that there wasn't blood there
3: at all yeah, I'm, in principle, I'm always reluctant to blame people's adult lives on their childhood, which I think got much overdone in the 20th century under F- Freud's influence. And I, th- I hope people are more grown up than to s- stay stuck in their childhoods. But in, this, in these two cases, it's certainly true that incredibly ill-judged, harsh, unimaginative, stupid upbringings affected uh, both of the future kings—they were both ba- very uh, Edward the Seventh, particularly—but both of them badly educated. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, Edward the Seventh was given an education in which, which was designed to have no ideas in it. It was facts, figures, dates, and learning by rote of the most mechanical and awful sort. As a result of which, he loathed reading books at all occasionally read novels when he was ill and, and and always found them pointless and he was very his 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 parents were terrified that he uh, that he would be dissolute and randy and drunken like his, un- his uncles and great-uncles and gave him the most puritan upbringing. His father, Prince Albert, used to hide behind bushes in the grounds of the royal houses and watching him play to check for corruption. And um, the, the boys were given from the age of about five or six uh, something like a 10-hour working day at schooling and then meant to do... He- sports because of the the Victorians as you know were obsessed with loathing of masturbation because it couldn't be sentimentalised like everything else in Victorian England could be sentimentalised so the whole whole regime was intended to leave them too exhausted uh, for anything like that but Edward VII was by 19th century standards an affectionate parent, he tried quite hard to be, he he was physically demonstrative to his sons in in a way that wasn't altogether conventional and kissed the future George V very publicly at the coronation. And the death of his eldest son, the Duke of Clarence, um, is the hinge on which his life turns. He is... um, uh, not a broken man, but he's he, he's broken hearted after this, and becomes much less bombastrous, much less selfish, and much more responsible in in the period of his grief, which lasts for the rest of his life.
5: Do you think that um, th- th- there's any truth in that statement? It's often quoted that that George V said, "You know, my, I was terrified of my father, and I, I'm going to make jolly sure that my children are terrified of me." Um, but because th- 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 it's certainly true that <coughs> that. Uh, as it was said, you know his 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 bellow when heard round the, the the corridors of Buckingham Palace terrified everybody in, 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 into fits. Now, did did he did he sort of suppress George V? Because one of the most interesting things I think about your book is where you talk about the reversionary interest, the fact that um, that, that, that 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 as far as. Um, Edward the Seventh and George V was concerned that there was no real opposition, as there was between you know every every monarch that you can think of, right up to Charles, Prince of Wales and 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 the Duke of Edinburgh today. You know that that, that this that this constant um, battle went on between the the uh, occupant of the throne and 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 the heir. Yes,
3: uh-huh. that, that that's a very good point. Um, Edward the Seventh. Uh, having suffered so much but from his mother forbidding him any sort of political influence involvement um, is very keen not to repeat the errors of the past and is conciliatory and uh, considerate towards his heir and they the only they're the only monarch and heir who really work well together in the uh, in, in 300 years um, i would say that part of the trouble in george v's Uh, upbringing is his mother, Queen Alexandra, who uh, has a very unhappy, has an unhappy marriage, is also really quite ill, lame and very deaf, and is an emotionally controlling woman to all her children who wants to infantilize her children, who doesn't, who really like her daughters never to marry or leave home, and makes them as young as possible for as long as possible. That's a real influence on, on, on George V. And of course, the education of these of both of princes uh, was delegated to the most sterile, stuffy, um, panic-stricken clergy, <laughs> awful, awful um, uh, uh, um, um, life diminishing human beings. Misery gutses, which which to which which, which both Edward the Seventh and Edward the Eighth react and be, and become playboys after this appalling Puritan mind numbing dullness that they were subjected to by their clergy. Yes, I I agree about that.
5: I, I and I mean Edward the Eighth. Um, did this ghastly thing of saying that, um, you know, to, to explain the fact that he never read a book, that he learned not from books but from life, which is the sort of saddest cliché of the illiterate I'm, that, that one can think of. That, 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 that he, he, he actually, when he was, um, one of his private secretaries said that he, he couldn't get Edward to read even half a page of 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 writing given give his instructions so he played everything by ear he did it by ear he was completely uneducated and i mean what went with that kind of philistinism was um the whole practical joke syndrome, which seems to me to be very indicative of sort of royalty, you know, that the 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 that the royals were much much more amused by when when someone uh, got their fingers stuck in the door than they would be at a uh, you know at a bon mot or an, an anything of that kind.
3: I think it was a stultifying kind of upbringing all, 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 all around, yeah. don't you? Yes, and practical jokes were very important to to, to my Prince of Wales and his circle of favourites, the, the Prince of Wales to set, the, the mob, the house set. They uh, play horrible, brutal, humiliating practical jokes on scapegoats in the circle, one of whom is a man called Sykes, whom they... Persecute for years, and um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, um, it, it's because he's so fawning that he attracts this uh, attention from the king's favorites. Uh, the royal favorites though get jettisoned with tremendous ruthlessness by Edward the Seventh. People get utterly dropped for folk because they suddenly become boring or mm. too permanently drunken. It's worth saying that Edward the Seventh is. Uh, I, I think the first member of the uh, first monarch for centuries I don't know from when who isn't a, does, isn't a drunkard he really quite dislikes drunkenness his next brother down who 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 he's very close to becomes an alcoholic and dies of alcohol really. and he and there was much less drunkenness as a result of of Edward VII uh, in the world household and throughout society, and that's that is yes. the difference. He made, he made it up.
5: Uh, he made up for it by by eating uh, inordinately. Didn't yes, he? I he mean Edwardian G- Ed- gluttony was really something uh, e- extraordinary. And you give uh, gr- graphic details in in your book, which uh, amused me a great deal about the kind of meals, you know, the twelve course meals, and so on. Nauseating details, <laughs> than the graphic. I think <laughs> terrible. Whereas, curiously enough, Edward the Eighth. Was extraordinarily austere as far as as, as far as food and drink uh, were were concerned. He did occasionally get drunk. That's true. And and um, but but um, he he was almost anorexic. Uh, and um, I, I think he adopted uh, Mrs. Simpson's watchword, that was that you know you can never be too rich or too thin. Um, so he he didn't he didn't go in for this at all. Edward the
3: seventh uh, had. Uh, um uh, increasingly abandoned the traditional territorial aristocracy as his hosts because they couldn't afford to entertain him on the on the royal scale that he wanted, Uh, and and this extended to food and to the quality of the shoots and to the luxuries of the houses. So he moves over from the 1880s when the depression in land values really starts to hit the traditional aristocracy. He more and more cultivates um, uh, uh, new money, millionaires, we we, know a lot about the way in which he took up Jewish bankers, Jewish financiers, and rewarded them with titles. But there were also a lot of Gentile, uh, Gentiles who were brewers or whiskey men or had other industrial interests whom he increasingly goes to stay with um, and, uh, and is fed by on this lavish scale and tamed by. And it, I do think what is interesting in both of these monarchs, is the way in which they find it convenient to distance themselves from the real high-land territorial aristocracy uh, and are both interested in new money. Yes, uh, no, very much so. I mean, the Chips-Channon connection with Edward the Edward
5: Eighth is is very striking. I, I was particularly struck by what you quoted from The Spectator, Richard, where you said um, uh, about the new sort of the new money and and what went with it, namely the new corruption. Um, it is dishonesty that kills national efficiency with a slow and horrible poison. It could it could be written about you know the, the oligarchs of today, and it was very striking that that Edward the, Edward the Seventh uh, uh, in, introduced this. Uh, very few people, as you rightly say, could could. Um, entertain him in the fashion that he was uh, that he that he wanted to be accustomed to and edward the similarly i mean it was very very striking that when he went down to wales just before the, the he he abdicated he went down to wales and he was very sympathetic with the t- towards the 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 the, 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 the dispossessed and they were unemployed in, in Wales. It was a famous visit, and he said at the end of that visit, something must be done. And he came back to London, and he went straight along to Bond Street and bought, him, bought a huge jewel for Mrs. Simpson. And then he dined with Chips Channon in his extraordinarily lavish Belgrave uh, Square house. And Chips was even slightly embarrassed by the splendour of the entertainment that he was given. And he sort of made some slightly deprecating remark. And e- e- Edward VIII uh, said to him, no, no, I like splendour. So that, that, that I think, summed up his, his, his approach towards it. Um, it was uh, something. It, it, it was perhaps the succession of the plutocracy over the
3: aristocracy. Yes, there, there were there are two points here. One, uh, uh, picking up on the word splendour, Edward the is the man who restores splendour to the royal household and to the royal family. The, vict- uh, vi- uh, the uh, Queen Victoria's household uh, tried to be. Uh, more bourgeois than that of Louis of Philippe, the Citizen King in France, and it and it's the, the, the smartest thing is not to be smart. It's a very dowdy place, but, um, and the, the, the state of the royal palaces is terrible when he takes over, and he um, uh, he institutes. W- most wonderful de- redecoration of the world households. He says, he has all the pictures we hung. He has the Buckingham Palace turned into a marvel of gilt and white and scarlet and he says, I don't know much about art, but I do know about arrangement. Yeah. And, and as he rehangs it, and he does bring splendor back and, and indeed to the coronations. Um, uh, uh, um, but certainly the plutocracy uh, come to matter enormously in his way. And, uh, the fact that half of his favorite plutocrats are Jewish legitimizes a great deal of anti-Semitism, and certainly encourages the more nationalistic, imperialistic, um, uh, um, uh, ultra-white wing diehards to be very offensive about foreigners altogether, and try to uh, try to. Um, tried to make Eng- England more insular. Yes, I think this is a most interesting point because
5: Edward VIII, of course, was rather anti-Semitic. Uh, it's a question as how deeply anti-Semitic he was, but he and Mrs Simpson uh, were uh, inclined to make uh, opprobrious remarks about Jews. And, and you know, w- way after the end of the war, um, you find Edward VIII, blaming the whole war on Roosevelt and the Jews, you know, the, the, as though this this was <laughs> what had caused the war. It's an extraordinary thing. But to co- come back to Rich, Richard's point, which I think is a very interesting one, it, this, I think, is a crucial difference between Edward the 7th and Edward the 8th, that whereas Richard's... Brilliantly described the, the 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 way in which he, um, he 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 elevates splendor and makes makes this important. I mean, he did this not not just inside Buckingham Palace, but the, you know the creation of the front of Buckingham Palace, the the the, the Mao. the whole business of pageantry uh, was something that he set great store by, and he looked the part. He had the charisma. He had the he, he had the appearance of of being um, a, a, a monarch in the traditional way, and. Pageantry, I think, was one of the crucial elements in the sustaining of the monarchy. And where Edward VIII was concerned, he thought it was all rot and flummery and, and he couldn't bear to take part in all these pompous occasions. And he tried to weasel out of it where he, where, where he could. And I think that this, although he was brilliant at projecting himself... Much more so, I think, than, than, than Edward the Seventh, because he went and he shook hands and he made speeches and so on. He blamed Edward the Seventh for, for just sort of snipping a few ribbons and laying a cornerstone and, and planting a tree and what, and then going back to his country house with his girlfriends, as Edward the Eighth put it. Whereas Edward the Eighth, uh, emoted, he 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 un, un, uh, he, 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 uh, he 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 went down he he. Shook hands with so many people that his right hand got got injured, and he had to shake their hands with his left hand. So he 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 he, he did all this, and and he projected himself. out, But what he didn't do was to keep his distance. To he he unbent. Perhaps he un- unbent too much. I don't know whether Richard's got a view about this, but certainly pageantry was the great strength that Edward the seventh brought to the monarchy after Queen. Victoria had been invisible for large parts of her her, her career, the widow of Windsor, and so on. Um, Edward the
3: e- 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 Edward the Seventh um, was every inch a king. Yes, uh, Queen Alexandra, his wife, uh, complained that she felt like uh, um, a, 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 a character. Uh, uh, in a, a royal character in an, of- an Offenbach comic opera, uh, <laughs> because he did he did t- try to make the life of the royal family when it was in its capital as operatic as possible. And, this, I, and, and the the point that, ben, that that Piers has just made is absolutely absolutely spot on. I think the difference between the two men is that Edward the VII, Seventh, Edward the Eighth, is colonial minded. And the colonies are full of informal dressing and people being chummy together and wearing shorts and swimming in lakes. And Edward the Seventh is utterly European in his imagination and his cultural references. When he redesigns the pageantry and the palaces, he's copying what he's seen, particularly in Austria-Hungary, but also uh, in, in the other European monarchies, uh, which are a uh, 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 very hierarchical kingdom uh, very, very hierarchical monikers um ve- with a lot of stultified grandeur about their about their public performance and that's what he's that's what he's copying uh and m- more than that as i uh, uh, what i think regard as an important bit of my book is showing how when he becomes oh. king he regards himself as a European monarch. He doesn't see himself in national terms. And every year he goes for a month to the uh, spa at Marienbad in Austria Hungary, stays there for a month, uh, and has a sort of alternate European court there so that people from all over Europe can come and see him, uh, consult with him informally. Have meals with him and talk and, 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 and talk without uh, without notes being taken. And he walks around Marienbad, which is just a it's a very beautiful small town, but it's just a spa town. And he does walk about there every day. Among the crowds there were photographs of him there with the mobs of people standing and watching him and walking past him and He's extremely accessible to the horror of his private detectives At a time at a time when other monarchs uh, all over Europe are being assassinated uh, So he's he's very much on show but he does it in Europe because he wants to project his personality as a peacemaker throughout Europe Yeah, It's very interesting
5: I think I would take issue with with one aspect of your book, Richard, which which was where you talk about his uh, his exercising um, power. You, you you do say in your your chapter heading that that um, he exercised influence rather than power, but you also say that he that the entente cordiale with France in nineteen three nineteen four was was couldn't have been achieved with, without him you don't go as far as simon heffer did in in his book which i thought was was way over the top uh, where he he claimed that that uh, edward the 7th exercised um power in a way that um hadn't been done before but um, if you look at what the politicians were saying. Uh, if you look at, um, you, you know, sort of what the Foreign Office was saying, that they were saying, well, e- Edward the Seventh is a pawn rather than a king, or at least he must be told that he's a pawn rather than a king. That he mustn't, he he, he shouldn't exercise too too much power. He has no no, no right to do that. And uh, and and w- w- when he said that, uh, when Gladstone heard that he wanted to be- become his own Foreign Secretary, um, Gladstone said that if he uh, if he thought that he was going to do that, he'd soon find his foreign office in foreign parts, which was a very good response, I think, to, <laughs> to, to the pretensions of monarchy. Now, what is interesting about this, I think it's an ambition that, that, that all royals have to, to exercise more more than simply Backstairs' influence. Of course, Edward the seventh exercised Backstairs' influence. He had a huge influence. He, he stopped women appearing at court who rode a, a, a stride on their horses in, high, in, in, in Rotten Row. <laughs> (laughs) Um, So that was a sort of influence, but I think it was a sort of trivial thing Uh, And I think his interference with the army he had huge nuisance value and similarly where Edward the eighth was concerned He wanted to be influential, but he was very firmly slapped down and the proof of the pudding of course was the abdication You know you are not going to do this And if you do well, I'm afraid you've got to go now. How how, how do you answer
3: that Richard am I wrong wrong about this? Uh, well, I, I Simon Heffer has written this this book about the uh, about the political power exercised by Edward the Seventh, and it's full of very good stuff. But as I say in my book, I think he over-eggs the pudding you do. At, at, at 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 every stage. And of course, newspaper columnists attempted to do that because they never can allow themselves to be boring for very good reasons. Um, I uh, I don't really find myself disagreeing very much with what. Piers has said uh, I, I, the the point really is that the, it, it, unexpectedly to me the Conservative governments, or rather the Conservative coalition governments, because they had coalition support to stay in power, were much got on much worse with Edward the Seventh than the Liberal governments that followed it. This is partly because the Conservative governments um, had some very feeble. Um, uh, ineffectual ministers, um, particularly in the service ministries. And Edward VII gets um, exasperated by the casualness of the submissions that he gets from the War Office and from the Admiralty. It's to his credit, the the Victorian army, one forgets, was incredibly shabby very not only Ill, fairly Ill, ill-disciplined in its drilling, but very badly dressed, and it is a much more disciplined and, and sprucer force as a result of Edward, of Edward the Seventh. But that's a that's a small matter. The real matter is that he tries to uh, have a, an alternate centralised diplomacy in his own head, uh, which leads to the Entente Cordiale, but also leads to these. Um, compl- ramified international treaties which make it very difficult for uh, Britain to hold out when war was on May- in mainland Europe in 1914. And I do suggest in the book that if Edward VII had been alive, he would have been much more alert to the uh, to the implications of what happened after the Sarajevo assassination and the the treaty obligations that were involved and the mobilisation plans that started, he would have been warning Whitehall and the government much more sharply uh, about the Imminence of European-wide war, and George George V didn't go abroad as a king because of the ta- uh, the tax deal. Uh, the tax deal that George V got in 1910 was that he wouldn't have to pay income tax if he paid for the cost of state visits foreign heads of state coming to London, he, he going to other capitals. And as a result of this, he only does two or three state visits in the 25 years of his reign to economize. Um, and he's just not interested in Europe.
5: No, no, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and all the other dams. Damned if I'll go. I mean, yes. that was that <laughs> was yes. his, That yes. was very much his line, wasn't it? <laughs> um, um, uh,
3: yes, I mean, he had, he 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 makes the British Empire. He makes the British Empire much more important yes. to the uh, royal family than it had been. Edward VII was terribly bored by colonial office minutes and by the whole paraphernalia of militarism. He's the first monarch to have. Indian rajas at his coronation, but he doesn't weed the papers and he thinks it's terribly, he thinks it's tiresome and preposterous stuff. Yes.
7: That leads quite nicely to my next question, which was how you think the relationship with the people of the nation changed in terms of their view of, of monarchy and their kind of deference towards it, I suppose, between the two periods.
5: I, I, I think that, uh, as Richard suggests in his book, that, that the the deference had been growing um, probably from the late period of Queen Victoria when she became a kind of national institution and she and she her, her popularity was boosted by the two jubilees uh, towards the end of her her reign so it, I think it started then it, it it was helped and this is something that I try to bring out in my book uh, to do, uh, help by the emergence of the popular press Um and what I say in my book is that Edward, the, Ed, Ed, Edward the, uh, Eighth was born <coughs> just about at the same time as uh, as the daily mail and and the beefeater press sort of followed quite rapidly after that and that helped to to boost the fortune of the monarchy because the provincial press had tended to be rather radical and and and, and, and sometimes critical <laughs> whereas the beefeater press uh, was absolutely four square behind the monarchy and the empire and you know, identified the whole thing uh, together and i think that the press had a very important uh, uh, um, contribution to make to the boosting of the, the monarchy i mean queen victoria in her l- l- late period became a kind of goddess really the, the great white goddess and, and and that that continued with edward the 7th who who was a a fetish paraded as a pageant um as Badgett said and the eighth similarly you know when he went on his Imperial tours he was he was adulated in the most extraordinary way and this was I, I don't say it was all got up by the press but the press jolly well helped uh, this to happen and the press was extraordinarily deferential I mean Northcliffe um, wrote to the King Edward the seventh private secretary saying, Look, um, don't just tell us what, what, what to write. Tell us what not to write ab- about royals. So th- this was this was the owner of the day of, of the of the Daily Mail saying that, and the rest of the press I think was was similarly deferential. Even somebody like Beaverbrook, who was a sort of maverick. Um, eventually came round and supported Edward the at the abdication at the period of the abdication.
3: I don't know whether you agree with that, uh, Richard. Yes, I think it's a, a win- the press is hugely important. One important point involving the press is that until the First World War, the national press was much less important than the local newspapers. Uh, they uh, local newspapers far outsold the London press, and it was only the appetite for war news that um, that, that made Fleet Street mount, And this had a great effect on national identity because Edward Seventh. we talk about Edwardian England, we don't talk about Edwardian Scotland or Edwardian Wales or Ireland. We'd call him Edward Seventh, although he was, in fact, Edward I of Scotland. He was very much an English monarch uh, and, and the the... the Industrial, the population the wealth the industrial power was very much in england um, uh, uh, during his reign much more so uh, i think than after the first world war and in Edward of the eighth's time and so the the, 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 the Edward the Eighth is um, the king of a democratic monarchy Edward the seventh is not um the the um the uh, the the right to vote is not there's not a right to vote in Edwardian England. You have property qualifications which um, largely apply only to males, um, but, all, but 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 there's a very restricted. Uh, suffrage much more restricted than people remember, um, and 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 with me- much more complicated in its qualifications, and the um, it is after all Edward the Se- Ed- Ed- Edward VII finds that the Prime Minister uh, has no formal role in, in ranking and in precedence in the country. He doesn't he doesn't count technically at all. And he insists that there's an order of precedences instituted with the Archbishop of Canterbury on top, and then the Lord Chancellor, then the Archbishop of York, and only then the Prime Minister. So politics, the politicians are definitely subordinated by the monarchy to the judiciary and to the Ch- Church of England. And that's a, an extremely different a political and imaginative environments the one that edward the eighth has to cope with mm.
5: i think that the press had a lot to answer for in this respect because um th- th- they successfully of course suppressed news of um edward the uh seventh's pleasant little failings as uh, as, as one of his friends called them um and uh, certainly his trips to foreign brothels and so on, were absolutely uh, uh, under wraps. I mean, there were people who were critical. Um, uh, W.T. Stead, for example, publicly said that that uh, Edward the, Edward VII as Prince of Wales was a, a wastrel and a whoremonger. Um, but on the whole, the press uh, kept that under wraps, and even more so um, where Edward the VIII's, uh, Peccadillos were concerned because he he had uh, he, he he had a a, a terrific but you know he exercised rather seigneur over society ladies and and indeed um had a whole lot of, um, a, a, a great history of, of of sexual conquests. And the press completely um, uh, clammed up, and it clammed up even more when the, 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 Mrs. Simpson appeared on the scene in 1934. There was just, there were careful, no references to it, not even when um, they went on this, uh, 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 yachting trip uh, in the Mediterranean in 1936 on the, on board the Narlin, and and the, the rest of the world's press were were publicising this and showing the king in informal poses and showing Mrs Simpson and so on. Everybody knew about it except except the Brits. And so when it it all blew apart as it did in in December 1936, the shock was absolutely colossal. Much as it was uh, during the 1990s, I suppose, when the young royals, uh, you know, their peccadillos uh, came out and and, and received the wash. But, of course, the press was much, much less deferential in... uh, largely I suppose Rupert Murdoch uh, um, with with his republican agenda during the late uh, 20th century whereas you know it came as a real shock to people in in, in 1936 and and Edward himself was shocked and he said you know are they referring to the king of England or was I some common felon uh, because anything in the nature of a an objective appraisal of the monarchy came as uh, to seem to him and to many other people
3: as as the most arrant Iconoclasm. Piers's answer is a great relief to me because i have worried that we were um, corruptly admiring one another too much, and I'm going to disagree <laughs> with him, finally, <laughs> uh, at least as far as Edward VII goes, because Edward VII, as Prince of Wales, has a lousy press, which is he's incapable of managing he, um, the most abusive and virulent things are written about him when he's involved in divorce cases. Uh, when he is involved in a particular gambling scandal called the tramby croft affair uh, he 's hooted and booed in theatres and on wastecourses and um, really reviled while he 's Prince of Wales. This does stop out of respect for the monarchy once he becomes king in. In 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 1901.
5: Yes, I was in, in yes. my own defence.
3: I was talking about his period uh, as, as, as monarch. As monarch yes, 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 and no, you're yes. absolutely right. But, of course,
5: yes, I wouldn't disagree with that. At but
3: whereas where Edward, whereas Edward the Eighth is has the most adoring press as Prince of Wales. He really is a glamour boy, yes. uh, and. Um, uh, it, Uh, is hugely admired by the lower level of servants who work for him. I've been reading an account of him by his um, protection surveillance officer who clearly idolised him, whereas the senior courtiers who had to deal with him at a grown-up business level were more and more uh, infuriated and sickened by, by his... Responsibility. Yeah, really, really shaken by him. I mean, yes. Lascelles, for example,
5: his private secretary, uh, when they were in um, in Kenya together. Um, he, uh, the, the, the King George V was ill, and Lascelles wanted him to go back. And and instead, Lascelles records in his diary he went off to seduce the wife of a district commissioner and accomplished this instead of instead of immediately jumping in a, 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 a train and a ship and so on and going back to his ailing father, who who, who looked as though he was going to die at that point. Um, he was more interested in, in this seduction, and Lassels expresses uh, then and at other times in the diaries um, a, a really. Frank uh, contempt and almost loathing um, of, of uh, Edward the Eighth. And uh, which is, uh, in due course, entirely reciprocated. Uh, Edward the... uh, or the Duke of Windsor referred to that snake, Lassel. So (laughs) it was very much a kind of... uh, a a mutual uh, dislike. But Lassel's was the voice of the establishment, really. You know, you do not behave like that. And what's interesting about Edward VIII, as compared to Edward VII, is that Edward VIII is unorthodox. I mean, he wanted to be called Edward the Innovator, and um, whereas Edward the uh, Seventh was uh, was was Edward the Orthodox, wasn't he? I mean, Edward the Caresser, no doubt, but he was Edward the Orthodox. He 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 he, he didn't, I think, have any um, any any feelings at all that
3: um, uh, that things should not go on as they always had gone on. One of the characteristics of a disempowered monarchy that no longer has political clout uh, or can intervene decisively in anything is that the the monarchs become more and more absorbed by and fascinated by technical niceties and trivia Uh, and the Obsession with uniforms and clothes and dress and appearance of Edward the Seventh and of George the Fifth is um, w- would now be thought OCD, though I don't think it was anything of the sort. But it was the, it was one of the ways in which the monarchs could still show power, admittedly on a rather, in many ways, on a pathetic level. And there's a wonderful account of Lord Salisbury, uh, the Prime Minister, um, turning. Turning up for a royal audience with Edward the Seventh in completely the wrong clothes. He's wearing the jacket of an elder of Trinity House and then a court trousers. And he's soundly rebuked by Edward the Seventh and replies, I'm very sorry, Your Majesty, but it was a very dark morning and no doubt my mind was on smaller matters. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
7: it was
5: lovely.
3: <laughs> it's a brilliant story.
7: <laughs> in what ways do you think these Individuals in their reigns influenced the monarchy today. what do you think their influence and their legacy was
5: well shall we shall, shall I start on do, on, do. on this i mean i I think that the legacy of Edward the eighth there's no question he shook the monarchy very badly uh, indeed, and um, it was perfectly clear that uh, the monarchy could only survive really by closing ranks by obliterating him from history, which is effectively what it does, keeping him abroad, um, writing him out of history, and a huge campaign w- was conducted to to make him what, the, what his wife called the world's number one forgotten man. You know, that he wasn't shown in the newsreels, he was kept out of the press and so on and so on, and he was kept abroad. Um, And uh, he tried to get back into the limelight by visiting Hitler and by doing all sorts of other things to get himself in the limelight, Uh, and and that was much, much resented. And uh, that was one element in the, the, the feud that went on. And the feud that went on, really, for as long as he lived was to do with the fact that uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, felt that, that, that he had been responsible for her husband's death because she had, he, he had forced George VI to become George VI, and as George VI, of course, um, the strains and so on of office were, were almost more than he could bear. I, I think this was an exaggeration, but nevertheless that, that happened. But where George VI was concerned, commitment to duty was absolute and he just completely towed the line, and similarly, uh, his daughter has completely towed the line. I mean, she has never in her life said anything um, of the slightest interest to anybody on a public occasion. She sometimes is overheard by microphones, but but she doesn't do that. She, she, she doesn't do what Edward the Edward VIII did, which is sort of, you know... Uh, uh, make noises, of uh, appeasing noises, or a- anything controversial. She keeps out of controversy at all costs, and she knows that the essence of the monarchy is to be inclusive and not divisive. R- really, I-, I think you can say that her devotion to duty and her taking the middle path and being inclusive and not divisive um, for the whole of her very long reign um, has been part of the legacy of Edward the Eighth. I don't know whether that's
3: your view. Uh, 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 yes, absolutely. And also, uh, one of the legacies, a, a further legacy, uh, which you hinted at, is um, a generation of Puritan inhibition in the royal family, which, as all periods of Puritan inhibition. Have had a, uh, had a tremendous, colorful counter reaction in okay. Two Courts. but uh, but the the inability of uh, of Princess Margaret to marry a divorced man, although there were, as I'm uh, discovering, other issues, in, in in that in in her choice of Captain Goop Captain Townsend that w- raised trouble, um, in in Edward's in, Edward the, in, in the, the, the importance of Edward the Seventh to the us today a number of them. One of them is that he did create the landscape in London, which we now identify with the monarchy and with all public occasions. He w- laid out St. James's Park. He had uh, in, uh, what we all consider the front of Buckingham Palace is, in fact, the back of it. Uh, and he tried to turn it into a much more European palace facing the street uh, and the people. And th- this, is, this was not a male matter of symbolism. It involved an intensified identification of the, of the subjects with their monarch. He also, he, he was, his his, his family surname was Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. He spoke German as equally as well as he spoke English or French. He identified himself with the German-speaking peoples, Austria-Hungary, perhaps more than Germany or Prussia. Uh, he he is hugely interested in everything that's happening in Europe. One of the reasons he likes Jewish multimillionaires so much is that they give him advanced news and confidential gossip from all the European capitals. And he has an amazing intelligence system of his own, um, which uh, is one of the great solaces and pleasures of his life, as well as very important to the way he conducts himself. Um, And he... Welcomed immigration. There was a there's a huge influx of of immigrants from not only escaping from Russian pogroms, but from but from um, Scandinavia and elsewhere in Europe who come and, and and Italians and French who come to settle in England, particularly in London during his reign. And this is a feature of his time that is. Um, much resented by the white wing and the nationalists, but um, very important in 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 identifying the big features of his way.
7: Do you um, think these stories have any lessons for us in the twenty first century?
5: I think Edward the has a a, a a great deal of significance for us, um, and and Edward the Eighth too. But I I think Edward the Seventh as, as Richard has rightly d- described it, I mean, what, the, the creation of Buckingham Pal- Palace as a great sort of backcloth to... Um, royal pageants is is enormously important with the mal as the great processional way and so on this is a sort of a, a very very important creation I think and it emphasizes the fact that um, as the present queen apparently once said she 's got to be seen to be believed and in other words she's got to she, she's got to project herself she needn't unbend too much I mean she can shake the odd hand but she 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 has got to be there as uh, the, the national um the national fetish; she's got to be there to be seen. And Edward VII emphasised the importance of this of, of pageantry as one of the elements of um, maintaining loyalty to royalty. Um, so I think that that's very important. And I think that that Edward VIII's legacy is simply that. Um, <sighs> The the monarchy is, is, um, it's a quasi-religion, it's a a form of um, being described as a form of British Shintoism. Um, uh, It only only works if you can, if, if the populace as a whole can have some respect for the person involved. This worked perfectly for him as Prince Charming on his tours when he, was, when he was visiting the poor and when he was sympathizing with the poor. In practice, of course, he was actually uh, a pretty, pretty poor at, at philanthropy, personally, and, and feathered his own nest to a huge extent, an embarrassing extent, which was one of the causes of the difficulty with, with, with his successor. But it looked as though he was a kind of um, Lord Bountiful, you know, that he, that, that, that he was there, uh, he sympathised with the poor and, and, and so on. And he gained a great deal of respect for that. He lost that respect, of course, uh, uh, owing to the Mrs. Simpson business. So I suppose what you can say about Edward, the, Edward VIII's legacy is that you've got to have respect for a monarch, in order for the, the whole mad system to to uh,
7: continue. If you could travel back in time and ask someone a question, either the subject of your books or someone else, what would you ask?
3: I, I feel that Edward VII's eldest son, the Duke of Clowns, is a very hard-done-by figure. Uh, he died of pneumonia when he was in his 20s, um, and it was... a a really tragic turning point for his father uh, who kept pictures of him above his bed for the rest of his life and i would like to and the duke of clarence has been um travested by a lot of people some cretins pretend to think that he was jack the whipper um, others try to tie him up with um a silly went boy scandal and he's always presented as a total duffer. He seems to he seemed to me a reticent young man with fairly low self esteem who was aware that he was in a very difficult situation. Um, and I would like to meet him. I would. Um, I'd like to meet him, I'd like to have really spent time with him and assessed him for myself since I think the historical record of him is really unconvincing. I've been thinking
5: about this and it seems to me that the the, the crucial unanswered question about Edward VIII is would he have, could he have, Lent himself to becoming a royal quisling, a kind of royal führer. Had had, had Hitler had Hitler invaded this country in nineteen forty, had Halifax, for example, been prime minister, had there been a, a, a deal, um, something of that kind, would Edward have become a kind of pater, a, a royal pater? Would he? Would he? Would he have convinced himself? Because he was. Pro Hitler, uh, there's no question about that. Uh, that he was uh, that he was con- helping the salvation of the country in the way that Pétain uh, thought that he was helping to save France from from Nazism, um, or, or would he have regarded this as a, a, as a gross betrayal and 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 a, 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 a completely contemptible act? Uh, Some people thought that he would have become a royal Quisling, others thought not. My conclusion, such as it is, is that he was a patriot. I think he was a fool rather than a knave, I think he was taken in by Hitler. I think he thought fascism was fashionable. Um, he went in for what was known at the time as Savile Row fascism. In other words, it was smart to be a fascist, you know. That, uh, and he was taken in too by the by the fact that Hitler was seemed to be solving one of the great unanswered problems of the 1930s, namely the problem of unemployment. And he did also worship strength. So there's a question really, and I think it's a question that no historian can answer. Maybe we, we, we could only answer by going back and asking him and maybe we wouldn't get a straight answer from him. But would he, would he under those circumstances have lent himself? Would he have worn the swastika? Would he, would he have um, acted as um, a sort of Gauleiter of England? It's, it's an interesting and unanswered question. And there are a lot of people who, who are deeply hostile to, to Edward, particularly to his anti-Semitism, who would say, yes, yes, you know, he, he was a scoundrel. I don't think he was a scoundrel. I think he was a very shallow, foolish, philistine, ignorant person um, and was,
3: was taken in by the fashions of the time. He was, um, of course, so emotionally submissive that I think that he would have been wonderful for the part of a puppet puppet monarch of Hitler's and would have done it quite well for about nine months. But he was also so pettish and um, uh, um, touchy and ultimately irresponsible, that he would then have fallen enormously foul of Hitler and would have had a plane crash. Uh, uh, (laughs) That's uh, a wonderful scenario, Richard, which I
7: (laughs) I think I enter into completely. (laughs) And finally, if your books could change people's impression of these people and the world in which they lived, how would you like it to do that? I, I think I mean, I asked the
5: question towards the end of the book, you know, if you could quit on a whim, which is what, what, what the, the, the eighth if 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 you showed really that um, You you were unfit to be king doesn't this open the door to the essential Republican argument, namely that a hereditary system, a system whereby the heir to the throne is chosen by a genetic lottery, doesn't that invalidate the whole argument? And I suppose that um, that is the seed that I would like to sow in the minds of
3: uh, 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 unsophisticated readers. All my best decisions are sudden and uh, personal decisions, are sudden and arbitrary and capricious. I'm a great, uh, I, I don't think people take better decisions and, uh, after lots of rational thought. And I like the arbitrary selection of the head of state by a genetic inheritance, particularly as I always have a nightmare of who one would have as a head of state instead, some terrible old party hack that's the Achilles heel of my argument. And I, I, I I'm so I, I, I simply couldn't bear it and I'd have to go and live in Belgium where there was, would still be a monarchy.
4: <laughs> that was Richard Davenport Hines and Piers Brendan. Edward VII, The Cosmopolitan King, and Edward VIII, The Uncrowned King, are both out now published by Alan Lane.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello.
3: This call is being translated. Abuela, listen
4: to what my phone can do.
3: Abuela, escucha
2: lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
3: Wow. Now tell me about this new
2: girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes
6: lo que dije. You know what I said.
1: Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now it's time for the
4: latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason.
0: Henry VIII's flagship, the Mary Rose, has been revamped to give visitors a better idea of what life would have been like for its crew. At the purpose-built museum in Portsmouth, which houses the warship, small viewing panels have been replaced with floor-to-ceiling windows and a balcony entered through an airlock. The ship, which sank in July 1545 in the Battle of the Solent, has undergone 34 years of conservation since it was raised from the seabed in 1982. The £39 million Mary Rose Museum first opened its doors to visitors in May 2013. The latest revamp, which saw the ship close to public viewing in November 2015, cost around £5.4 million to complete. Conservation manager Dr Eleanor Schofield said it was a, quote, emotional moment. It feels like you can reach out and touch it. You get a sense of the compartments and relate it all to the artefacts and the people on board, she said. Hundreds of men aboard the Mary Rose drowned when it sank in 1545, and only around 25 survived. The most likely reason for the loss of the ship was human error, according to the Mary Rose Museum. In other news, a new permanent exhibition at the Churchill War Rooms in London is to show how the former Prime Minister became so irritated by his noisy co-workers that he banned whistling and imported bespoke noiseless typewriters for his staff. Titled Undercover, Life in Churchill's Bunker, the exhibition will reveal the day-to-day life of working for Winston Churchill, including testimony from a handful of staff members who worked closely with Churchill in his war rooms, the exhibition will feature a printed sign warning them against whistling in the corridors and special typewriters the Prime Minister ordered from the US to eradicate the tapping that so annoyed him, the Telegraph reports. Meanwhile, doodles in one of Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks, previously dismissed as, quote, irrelevant notes, in fact prove the key to his theory of friction, it has been suggested. Academics at the University of Cambridge Believe hand-drawn diagrams and notes found in the page of a tiny book dating from 1493 and held in the VNA archive show how Leonardo started thinking about the force of friction on two sliding surfaces. After re-examining the drawings, which were described by a director of the VNA in the 1920s as quote, irrelevant notes and diagrams in red chalk, Professor Ian Hutchings believes they show how Leonardo began sketching out his ideas. Professor Hutchings said, The sketches and text show Leonardo understood the fundamentals of friction in 1493. Leonardo is today credited with developing the laws of friction, despite not seeing the work recognised in his lifetime.
6: Now
4: here's a reminder that our August issue is currently on sale. Inside this month's magazine there are articles on Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Cultural Revolution, the Ancient World, and the historical context of Britain's vote to leave the EU. You can get hold of our August issue in all good newsagents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptionscom forward slash US. And just before we go, I'd like to mention a new podcast that's been produced by one of our historical advisors, Professor Rab Houston. The series is called The History of Psychiatry in Britain Since the Renaissance. And the first two episodes are already available to download. You can find the episodes at arts.com Sunt andrewsacuk forward slash psychhist, as well as on SoundCloud. Well, that's pretty much it for this episode, but do listen in next week when we'll be talking about the history of the ancient world, among other things.
6: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.